Oh, hey, oh, Sopranos podcast fans. Did you know that we're available on all of your favorite social media platforms? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that shit. We got it. At the Sopranos podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And at Sopranos podcast, no the, on Twitter. Please like us, interact with us. We're very accessible, myself, Jordan, and Paul. We love to hear from our fans. We love to hear from people who enjoy The Sopranos as much as we do or from people who don't like The Sopranos. Maybe you want to tell us to go fuck ourselves. That's fine, too. Just interact with us and like us in the process. If you really like the show, the best thing you can do for us is subscribe on your various platforms. Wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google, whatever, Please subscribe to us. That helps our visibility. It helps us get new listeners. It helps bring more people into the Sopranos conversation, and that is a good thing. The best thing you can do for us, honestly, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Extremely helpful. Many of you have, and we appreciate that. But if you don't think the show is worth five stars, let us know why. I'm not going to get mad. I'm not going to take you out in the back of the bing and slap you around Tony Soprano style. But I would like to know what would make the show better for you, more enjoyable for you, the listeners. So please, hit us up. Podcast at gmail.com. Hit us up there with any comments, suggestions, ideas, thoughts. We would love to hear from you. In the meantime, we look forward to bringing you a nice, heaping portion of Audio Sunday Dinner every other Sunday, and we will continue to do so through the rest of the series. Thank you for listening. Please enjoy this episode. Bada bing. Hey! It's the Sopranos Podcast, Season 2, Episode 6, A Gust of Wind. I got the world by the balls, and I can't stop feeling like I'm a fucking loser. That is a quote by our leading man, Tony Soprano, in this Season 2, Episode 6 of The Sopranos, entitled The Happy Wanderer. The Happy Wanderer was written by Frank Ranzulli and directed by the legendary deceased John Patterson. The Happy Wanderer. This is an episode that I am always excited to rewatch. I've seen it a lot. This is one of those episodes I kind of have seen a lot of, um, maybe more than other episodes I've rewatched because there's an excitement to this episode. It's, oh, yeah. it's centered around an event. It has a nice build. It kind of has a, a mountain style arc where it's like we're building, building, building to this executive game. And then we have all the falling action after the executive game. But it's all centered around this executive game. And some interesting new characters and some older characters uh, inflaming rivalries. This is an exciting one. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we're going to break it down for you. What did we think? Initial thoughts on The Happy Wanderer. Who wants to take this one? This is a big episode for me for a number of reasons. I think a big part of it has to do with not just the suffering that we see in this episode, but... Tony's response to it, how no matter what people think of Tony, we when we watch this show, we are in part seeing him as a creature of id, as a person who often expresses our frustration with the world and a wish that we could handle it in this outlaw fashion. But in this episode, we see that Tony is not the happy wanderer. And why? And he has to, how he has to deal with these different aspects of his life. And it's not going well, even though he's back in therapy. So I love seeing all that. I agree with you that 
there's great buildup to the executive game with a lot of humor in it. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, the fallout has dire consequences. I want to hold off because I certainly want to make room and I want to hear from you guys on this. This episode seemed especially painful for me in terms of when you're a kid, you can't control the influence that your parents have on your life. Yes. And that for Meadow and Eric in particular, that was at times tough to handle. So... It, it's an emotional episode. It's powerful. It's got hilarious moments. And Frank Renzoli, no surprise. Sure. He's, he brings the he brings the humor. Little touches that Patterson does. I'm sure we'll get to that. One mm-hmm. of my favorite Sopranos directors. So a superb episode in, in an already superb season. And I think now we're just about at the halfway point of this season, which we ourselves mentioned started off pretty slow burn. And now we're really seeing it heat up. Oh, yeah. From a lot of different venues. Mm-hmm. I was very excited to be at the big game. Uh, the scenes are set up in such a way in this episode where, like, yeah, you feel the mounting excitement along with the characters. You feel like the big game is going to have a lot of consequence, and it ultimately does. I feel like also the Happy Wanderer is a nice companion piece to the episode Boca from season one, where you have Tony having to deal with problems on the home front that intersect his professional life, his mob life. Um... Of course, in season one, he had to deal with the rapist Coach Hauser and, uh, you know, assaulting Meadow's friend Allie. Uh, in this episode, we have another episode that's going to be important to uh, Meadow and how her father sort of meddles with things that are pertinent to her life. We have, you know, Davy the gambling addict is the father of Meadow's friend uh, Eric and, uh, you know, Tony's mob life and how he deals with Davy uh, is, you know, going to impact her directly. So this is a nice cut across. Uh this is also an episode where we get to see Richie April being threatening on two fronts, uh, both in the mob life and on the home life as well. Well said. I adore this episode for the excitement, the pace, the build, the, res- the resolution, the feelings it gives me. However, I also left this episode feeling awful, sick to my stomach about how it all plays out. And most of that relates to the journey with Dave Scatino. You know, as I've gotten, and I mentioned to Paul before we started recording, that this episode is one of those that hit different as a slightly older man than when I first watched it. Slightly. I mean, I've lived half my life since I first watched it, so it's slightly older. (laughs) But I'm in my 30s. I own property. I have a marriage that I care very much about. And seeing... Just how sick this guy is. And knowing people in my life now who have dealt with addiction, who have suffered from addictions, and seeing what it can do to somebody. And it's also one of these episodes in The Sopranos where they know, the the creators of the show, the writers on this show, the team that makes this show tick, know that we're charmed by these guys very often. And every once in a while, they like to drop an episode in to just remind you, like, hey, the mob is awful. These are predatory, evil people. And it's just, you really see the mechanisms at work here. How the bread hits the table. How the how the sausage is made. It, it really shows, like, this is the way their lifestyle has been funded off of the suffering and vice of others. And it affects not just the people directly involved. It would be one thing if Dave Scatino was just fucking up his own life. But we see through their kids how this stuff permeates out into people who had no say in what's going on. Right. Fascinating subject matter. 
I'm excited to dig into it. So let's just start from the top. We got college night. It's kind of an open house at Verbum Day where Meadow goes to school and Eric Scatino, his father Dave Scatino, who is the first time we're going to be seeing this character. Played by actor Robert Patrick. Uh, big actor, especially in the 1990s, uh, but he has a, an illustrious career both before and after the 1990s. Usually plays characters that are very confident. I mean, look at him. He's got, you know... Uh, handsome guy, you know, we know he likes to play a lot of threatening characters, probably best known as the T-1000 from fucking Terminator 2. Uh, and he's playing kind of a nice guy character at the start of the episode who will become increasingly more pitiful and less likable as the episode goes on. I love these characters, and I call them sort of utility co-star roles in the show, where they cast against type. They did it in season one with Vin McKazian, and now they're mm. doing it here. This isn't the guy you might think of as a degenerate gambler, this this guy who's not very much in control of himself and his life and his things are spinning out and he becomes quite a pathetic figure by episode's end. But he does a great job with it. It's one of those instances where like somebody made a call to cast a little bit against type and it fucking worked. Really yeah, worked yeah. really well. John Hurt as Vin McKazian being the parallel here is a really, really good comparison. I think that's spot on because we had said so many times in season one, wow, really good to get John Hurt here because you could see like there's a fall from grace that happened here. This was like America's dad has <laughs> fallen into, you know, the clutches of Tony Soprano and sort of ruined his life. Also through probably a gambling addiction, we think. Now look at this guy. We have another, again, kind of an all-American guy. He runs Ramsey's Sporting Goods Store. I can't think of a more all-American shop than that operation. But still, you know, gambling preys on his soul as well. And we see what it comes to. I I agree. I think the against type works really nicely there. Yeah, I think also eerily, when I was watching this episode play out, I was called back to maybe, Jordan, you were saying that of Vin McKazian in season one, this was a guy who maybe his life went wrong because of Tony Soprano. And sure enough, we're seeing that aspect play out in real time. Mm. Dave Davey coming under the influence of these guys, the frog and the scorpion kind of connection. And I also think a key factor is that Dave Ramsey is a happy wanderer. His response to even being in this critical debt is like, oh, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm hitting some bad luck. It ends <laughs> up actualizing Tony's frustration to the point where he becomes violent with him. Mm. It's very interesting to see it play out and seem to, as I say, actualize what Tony is talking about in that opening therapy scene. Very well said, Paul. And we see them at this uh, night, and we get a sense that uh, these guys may have uh, hung out growing up. Him, Artie, and Davey, there's kind of this built-in rapport. There's a we get a sense of camaraderie here that these are these are guys who know each other well and, and grew up together, obviously, Davey and Artie are not in Tony's mob life as much, but, you know, they're, we're getting a sense of place with these people that, that yeah. Tony has uh, grew up with them and knows them well. Of course, now they're like Phil Donahue and Alan Alda. <laughs> <laughs> the stakes that are set up here are very interesting. The guy the guy who opens the episode speaking, a rep from I guess, uh, Brown. 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 Yeah. Okay, yeah. so another prestigious university, says get all of your academic and extracurricular ducks in a row. So there's that uh, imagery again. Mm. Very nice. And he says leave nothing to chance. It felt a bit to me, I know nothing about card games, by the way, it felt a bit to me like what these kids are essentially being inducted into is a high-stakes poker game. 
Mm. Of, of getting yourself that seat at the table. The, this is exclusive getting into these schools. And interestingly, again, it also seemed like the dads were a little bit removed. They're like fucking around in the bathroom and doing jockey kind of jokes. Fuck you too and that yeah, whole thing. Yeah, yeah. But these two dads end up having a remarkable effect on the trajectory of the two kids. Yeah, also um, Artie is, <laughs> I guess, catering college night at high school, which... Um, you really feel for this guy. It's almost kind of played a little bit buffoonish. I don't know, but he's just really gone overboard. You see these gorgeous dessert platters that would, you know, you, you'd think you would see it like some kind of high-end event. But it's just the school college night. The most my school ever put out for college night would be like a couple of donuts, maybe, that some, you know, the PTA brought in. Yeah. that these gourmet desserts, just like, wow, just, um, he's such a try-hard, and it makes him so lovable, but also a little pitiful as well. <laughs> Absolutely. They love doing this where, um, this, this, when I say they, I mean the people behind this show where ultimately uh, you wouldn't want to be in Tony's position, but Tony is very clearly the person who has the most success of these two. He is the most glamorous. It's like, wow, gangster living in that mansion on the hill versus the chef who puts a little too much effort into the college night versus right. the guy who owns the, 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 the sporting goods store, which is a perfectly wonderful way to make a living. It's an all-American kind of thing, but it's not a, being a gangster, let's sure. be honest. But let's also just acknowledge the darker implications here. Tony is the cancer in both those lives yeah. of those two gentlemen. So it's almost like, if we want to go big with this, it's like Tony corrupts the totally normal American society that he is a part of because every life he touches crumples in some way, right? Mm. Oh, you're my friend that owns the restaurant? Let me fucking blow it up. Okay, but also then... Always use you as, like, my regular go-to meeting spot and force you to hire this guy. Oh, you're in my life and you own a sporting goods store. I'm going to exploit your gambling addiction to the point where you lose everything. You know? Yeah. That's just any life that Tony touches. Sure. You know? Yep, everything he touches, yeah. And we get a sense early on in the bathroom scene that this guy is a gambler. He asks Tony who you got in the big game. And before Tony can respond, Artie comes in and they get sidetracked. But Davey ends up pulling Tony into a hallway and asking him about Junior's executive game. That's mm -hmm. the first we're hearing of it. So the idea of, of, an, of a game that is uh, you know, a high-end game, something that Junior run, maybe that means it goes back a ways. And Davey wants in, and Tony is discouraging him. What do we think about this start here? And the idea of this executive game, Davey wants in. Tony's... Do you have any idea how many jock straps I sold this month? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great. Great line. Not enough for this game, he tells him. Tony is being very frank with him. He's being a little coy at first. Believe none of what you hear, half of what you see. He's skirting around it. What do we think here? Uh, let me ask this. Let me ask this question because it's it's also going to play into the broader scheme of what happens. Is Tony preying on him? Is this just an elaborate way that this this being coy and not letting him in? Is he? Is this like? Is he circling his prey, or is he legitimately looking out for this guy? Like, you don't want to sit down here at this game, Davey. Don't, don't do this. I actually think both. Uh, mm. I think Tony doesn't know all the information about Davey. I don't think he knows how bad a problem he has. Because the worst, to Tony's mind, I think, insofar as much as he knows in the beginning of this encounter, at the beginning of the episode, it's just like, worst comes the worst, this guy has a profound interest in playing in the game, and maybe he will. You know, but I don't think Tony realizes that this guy has a severe gambling problem, at least not to that extent that he ultimately gets to in, in this episode. You know, uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Um, Tony should have strongly discouraged him, and then later in the episode when he shows up at the game, he should have said, get the fuck out of here. 
He doesn't do either of those things. I don't think that he's preying on him, but he's not being as stern with him as he needed to be. But I don't think Tony has all the information yet. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very interesting question and kind of an important one that I was asking myself as I was watching this. I do think part of what Tony comes to wrestle with in a way, and certainly we as the audience do, is that the qualms don't matter because it's all the same shakedown. Richie Aprile, because of his stupidity and because of his lack of discretion, lashing out in the middle of a game at Davey, and because he, of course, has no qualms about exploiting a degenerate gambler, will make a better target for our ire and Tony's ire. But when Tony gets back in there and he's telling Davey, somebody's going to be there Saturday, I'm like, these are the shakedown terms. This is all the same deal. What he eventually explains to Meadow is, this is what I do. That's what Tony has to deal with. So I think it's an interesting set of questions. But what Tony comes to essentially, I think, have to wrestle with is staving the guy off, telling him, don't say short if you don't mean short. That doesn't matter. This is what Tony does. This is who he is. Speaking of who Tony is, Melfi's trying to get to the bottom of that in the next scene here. We uh, have our first, I don't want to say real, because they technically resumed their therapy at the end of the last episode, but their first real therapy scene. This is the first time now in season two that we feel like, okay, Tony and Melfi, the work is continuing. We're back in in therapy. Where does it go from here? He tells her very bluntly, I'm angry. Uh, I'm feeling like I want to smash your face like into a fucking hamburger. Yeah. And she latches onto that. And they have a very funny exchange where Tony is like, you know, I know I broke your table. I'm not going to, you know, makes it clear that she's not in any danger. But he's expressing how I feel. And, uh, you know, she does, as Tony says, the woman thing. You know, you asked, I told. Now you're going to, you know, torture Torture me with it. it, Yeah. What do we think of this awesome scene? And he, he he, he makes reference to the title of the episode, The Happy Wanderer. How when he sees a guy with a clear head, he just wants to strangle him. Uh, but he also says that he re- resents Melfi making him a victim, which I wrote down. That's a very fascinating quote, given what we know about Tony and how he is not only... He is a victim of what his mother tried to do to him and how he was brought up, but he also victimizes others so regularly. What do we make of this first scene back here? Tony reveres Gary Cooper for being the strong, silent type, and he reveres men who can be like that. In other words, guys that can kind of like keep it all inside of them and kind of deal with their own problems and, you know, people that don't need therapy, don't need a shoulder to cry on. But this to me is just more of this um, kind of unnecessary or maybe harmful romanticization of the, the past, the idyllic past, right? The truth is that people like that never really existed, right? We learned in the previous episode that even Tony's father had these problems with anxiety and panic attacks and things like that. So there was never a Gary Cooper type, right? This is totally a a construct. It's this false thing that Tony's made up in his head, this uh, totem of strength that is not real strength. He, so is the happy wanderer, by the way. That's also not a thing that it, nobody's that happy. Absolutely. I was, I was just coming to that, right? So this idea of the happy wanderer, right? This person that goes around with a totally clear head, whatever. Uh, it's this thing you could chase your whole life. You could you could never walk around totally, totally happy, uh, you know, and, and free and clear of your life's worries and obligations and the things that vex you. So I, I was deeply sad in this scene, even though there's some really funny dialogue. So I was like... Oh, man, you can't see that that's not a real thing, right? Mm. There's no Happy Wanderer. There's no Gary Cooper. This is not real shit. You have to work out a way to be, find your own happiness, sort of, you know? Mm. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating scene to to look at in that respect. I love, Jordan, you use the word totem. That seems so mm. on point. And he starts off with this frustration, at he's, as he says, 
Um, I think that's our pull quote. I got the world by the balls. I can't help feeling like I'm a fucking loser. Yep. So, again, winners and losers in this poker game dynamic. And Tony is resentful of the happy wanderer because of what is clearly this pain in his life and frustration. But at the end of the scene, he angrily is insisting that I'm more like one of those assholes <laughs> than the jerk-offs and douchebags I see leaving this office. And but and so that's the thing. that. The, but the truth is, even if he, as we said, the totem chasing this happy wanderer thing that doesn't really exist, what will happen in this episode is Tony's oscillation between self-justification and guilt it's going to bring him to a place where he's dealing with the complexities of those sufferings even if he wants to be more like the happy wanderer we see him troubled at the end of the episode yeah so Mm -hmm. yeah i love that little sigh melfi gives it's almost silent but it's barely there but she just insults her the whole lifestyle her patients (laughs) right everything she does and then we cut to the next scene which is Richie April card game. Yeah. Uh, this is a first introduction to a new character. This actor actually appeared in the season one episode, The Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti. But uh, Joe Ganascoli, who played Gino in The Bakery in season one, they must have liked his look, or he auditioned, or they thought nobody would notice, or whatever. But this big fat guy sitting at the table is a character who's joining us for the first time named Vito Spadafore. And he's supposed to be Vito in this scene. This is Vito. Okay. This is, yep. Uh, he's he's in the credits as Vito Spadafore. Okay. He's joined the show as this underling to Richie. This, you know, let's be. He's a comically heavy guy. He's a big Italian mob looking guy, and uh, played by Joe Ganascoli. And we see Artie cleaning house. Santa Maria, yes, you know, and pulling it in. <laughs> and Davy Scatino is sitting at the table, not doing too well. This isn't the executive game. This is like kind of a dingy social club somewhere in Kearney, probably. And Richie asks his dealer to count this chooch out another dime after uh, <laughs> he's into Richie for, I think, seven grand already. And he's like... So another dime would be, what, 10,000? Yeah, yeah his, uh, he's lost seven. Hey, let me borrow 10. I'll get it back from Vito in an hour. You know, he's, he's saying that. So he is borrowing money to win back. He's already in the hole, but he can't get out of the hole unless he plays. So yeah. he's got to try to beat Vito. Only lets up the ante. The stakes are getting higher, and they're going to continue to get higher as the episode goes on. Great setup. We get the sense that this guy's got at least the compulsion. It juxtaposes him with Artie, who dutifully goes home to Carmela, or else she'll have my balls on the menu. Yeah. And we set up Richie, who's like uh, the last fucking person on the East Coast that I would ever want to be in debt to. I was just about to say that it's one thing to owe the mob money. If I were the kind of person who borrowed money from the mob, that would like I still wouldn't borrow Richie April's money. Yeah. <laughs> no thanks. Yeah, I'm good there. Anything about this poker game? Shall we move on? I think just that it sets up what we may already suspect, which is that not only does Davey have a gambling problem, he's also not a talented card player. If you're losing money to one Artie Bucco, who seems like probably a bad gambler to begin with, and you're already in the hole in a more casual game, the last thing you would probably want to get to is some kind of executive game with talented card players with deep pockets. That's not where you want to be. Well said. Mm, These guys, they play deep. Yeah. So we go from this poker game and we see uh, another spine that'll be traveling through the middle of this episode, and that is Cabaret Night at Verbum Day. In the interest in getting all their ducks in a row, they're 
We're getting uh, Meadow and Eric getting involved in their extracurriculars. They're shoring up some of their arts involvement. It's one of those things, you know, you want to get into these high-level schools. you got to have a variety of different things, community service, variety of interests, excellent grades, good test scores. So they're doing what responsible students getting ready for college would do and venturing out into extracurriculars. We see them rehearsing... Uh, I think it's Sun and Moon from um, Miss Saigon. Saigon. Yeah. And uh, Meadow says that, first of all, a totally unconstructive comment from the <laughs> from the cabaret director or whatever. <laughs> well, we got our work cut out for us. Next, yeah, <laughs> moving on to, it's like, okay, yeah, no, no, you don't have notes? You're just telling them it sucks? Well, you know, okay. Uh, <laughs> and then Meadow says that she was hoping for a uh, solo and um, just a little bit there that is going to come back later on. Uh, but yeah, Cabaret Night, not sure what else there is to say on that, except, uh, we're just taking note of it for later. Oh, and we already knew Jamie Lynn Sigler has a, a very nice voice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so she yeah. likes to give her opportunities to sing yeah. every so, so often. Yeah, so, you know, that's, that was good. Yep. Good casting there. And then, um... Oh, and the German girl has a wonderful voice. Oh, yeah, Gudrun, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gudrun has a, her voice is beautiful, I thought. Yeah, she's yeah, doing it's a lovely not, job. I think it's a pretty deliberate setup that Gudrun is a doing something appropriate to her back. I mean, she's a German girl. She's singing, like, some German ballad. Meadow is supposed to be playing, like, a Vietnamese character. <laughs> um, plus, Miss Katana, who's walking over to talk to Meadow, just lets the German girl take off because she doesn't need any help. Right. She doesn't need any adjustment. Like, Eric doesn't... Eric is light in the arts. That means he can't do this. Mm. And, it, <laughs> like, so, yeah, of course, they have their work cut out for them, but they're not doing it to light the place on fire. They're doing it for the resume. Right. Right? So that's the setup, and it's perfect for what will happen here. Yes. And then we get this fascinating scene. I love this scene. This is one of, like, the three scenes I think of when somebody mentions Happy Wanderer episode of Sopranos. I think of this scene in the doctor's office between Junior and Tony Mm. where uh, he's told, you know, lose the miserable puss, it's mine now. The executive game. And they're kind of reminiscing about it takes a certain kind of player i like you know they really add it gives the executive game even more gravitas this scene hearing junior talk about it so wistfully and so reverently and it's clearly something that earns a lot for them and has a bit of prestige and you know this might be like a, a crown jewel of the jersey mob family they're in garbage they're in waste they're in uh boring stock offices but they have this nice executive game. That, uh, this is a big deal. We get the impression it's an annual event that's been going mm-hmm. on for what sounds like at least 50 years. Yeah. So uh, quite a period of time. Um, we also get mentioned in this uh, scene of... <laughs> Junior almost kind of compares the way that they lend money and how they do their business almost to how credit cards mm. are run, where the people getting the credit card are just so happy to have the card. They're like paying for the pleasure of being juiced. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, paralleling a number of other conversations, both from season one and this season, where, you know, the scams run by the mob are not so different than the scams run by the legitimate world, whether it's in stocks or credit cards. That's people such a... are getting the loans the way they're getting them. Yeah, you know? that's such a great pull, Jordan. I, I know just from knowing a little bit about David Chase and the way he thinks and hearing different interviews and, and you know, what little I know about David Chase is that uh, he looks upon big 
predatory business practices with as much contempt as he would the mob. True. So I just think it's it's a nice touch that they're they got their idea for the executive game from mainstream credit card sure. companies. And you know, is Davy's gambling addiction really so different than someone that has like a shopping habit and just goes to town on their credit cards? Because the kind of terms that are being brought to Davy, like, hey, when you fall short on a payment, that gets added back onto the principal. Mm. Uh, eventually it becomes usury. Yeah. Um, and that's really what's what's happening here. So Junior, it's oblique, but he's he's kind of pointing out what Dave's situation is as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, that's not the big big mention in this scene. Yeah. And I love the I love the quote he gives too when Tony uh, kind of scoffs at the amount of money that was left behind by his dad, and Junior says, "You know, Livia's like a woman with a Virginia ham under her arm, crying the blues because she has no bread." I think that's a good quote. I like that. Uh, also, I mean, from that quote. Olivia has mentioned, I, I have this money, I don't know where I've hit it. You know, that's that's another could-be reference to that. Uh, but also it's it's this idea that Livia would never represent that she has money and she can take care of herself because she wants everyone to feel bad for her. She needs that attention in that very specific way. Yeah. So Tony has always had to provide and always had to look out for her and her finances. But really, she could be as independent as she wants to be, doesn't want to be. Again, a good setup by Patterson here. I think you see Tony's reaction. At first, as you said, Chris, he scoffs. Oh, yeah, that's why he left us with Chi-Chi Beans. Junior, in this interesting moment, I think a smart move, he uses Tony's knowledge of his mother against him. I gotta tell you, this is Mm. what she's like. And you see Tony react like, yeah, that's true. Mm. Really good writing. And then the, the lead up to the reveal about Tony's uncle. And he drops a major bombshell here. This is no significant... This is not an insignificant thing. Like, I would be floored, and I'm younger than Tony, at this point in my life to be told by an elderly family Right, in your 40s to have been kept this from... That you have an uncle that you didn't... That you had. He's he's passed. But you had an uncle you never knew about, and the family kind of kept it a secret because he was, as Junior... As Tony says, retarded. As Junior says, fuck yourself. He was slow. Um, That they didn't know how to handle back then. Uh, I really... It's so interesting because I I have elderly family member that just don't know how to say things to younger people and just like don't know how to contextualize things that are more understood now. And just like I I, I like Junior working through that. If it was today, they'd have trained him to be a whatever or something, you know, and how, you know, the parents didn't know the language and they didn't know what to do with this kid. It's a real kick in the it's a kick in the head a little bit for Tony. Like the Dean Martin song, man. Ain't that a kick in the head? It's uh Well, I guess we're led to believe that uh Johnny Boy and Junior got the money together and they basically sent away their brother. Like mm. they probably didn't really see him very much after that. Yeah. Uh and Junior lives with this guilt. Yeah. Mm. It's an interesting yeah. moment, interesting revelation. What do you make of this, Paul? Yeah, uh, Junior living with that guilt, I think that's really key because it does seem as though in some, part of why he can't give Tony what he wants in this scene is not just emotional a lack of emotional availability, but that he's almost in his own world with it, saying to himself kind of, what the hell were we thinking? Mm. You know, the, the of course, so much less was known about that at the time. It is sad, it, um, even though there's, that, <laughs> there's so many funny moments in this scene. Oh, yeah. I think at one point... Tony's figuring something out. He says, "He says, wait, you saying I had an uncle?" And he, uh, Junior's as sharp as a fucking cue ball. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But you know, it's and it's a hell of a thing. These these are also characters. We're all Italian, and these are Italian guys from North Jersey, working class vibe, 
tribe is important to them, legacy. And Tony, already with this feeling of being like a loser, mm. even though he's got this solid position, now finds out that he's got a retarded family member, and of course it's going to be this crushing kind of thing to him that he doesn't quite know how to deal with. Yeah, I, I also, uh, to Paul's point, Tony from the previous episode is already thinking like, all right, in my family history, I already have my father who suffered from anxiety, probably depression as well, had panic attacks, would pass out. And now I find out I had a full uncle who had an intellectual disability as well. In fact, to the point where my mother would refer to my father's feeble-minded brother, I thought she was talking about you. Uh, and I think t t Tony is so put off balance in that scene from these revelations that um, ultimately it is to Junior's business advantage because I think Tony was initially going to give him like 5 or 10% of the game. Junior comes back at him for 20 and ends up at 15, which is far more than Tony felt was owed to Junior. So this is also a little bit of smart manipulation on Junior as well because he knows what this information is being used to do. It made me miss Junior as the central villain of the show because he is so smart and uh, enjoyable to watch. Richie Aprile is enjoyable for different reasons, but... I don't really think a smart character, so um, we have lost that element. Well said. I agree, Junior's a great character, and I, as a viewer, and as a fan of the show and that character in particular, I relish our minutes with him at this point, because he's he was in a lot of season one, and he was right. vital to its... Un, and it not, it's not that he's not a vital character, his presence is still crucial to the to the show and the, and the narrative, but he's, uh, you know, he's at yeah. this current point in the story, he's about... A scene, an episode. Yeah, he's not a leading character in yeah. season two. He's yeah. a supporting character. And that's okay. That's okay. That happens. There's a season in The Wire where the main character is in like three episodes. That's really funny. Yeah. So that happens. That happens, especially when you have writers who are being really creative and working outside the box. And then um, Richie goes shopping for a boat with tree propellers <laughs> at uh, <laughs> Ramsey's Sporting Goods Store. And, uh, you know, I'm just breaking your kid's balls. And he goes in there to collect his envelope. And, uh-oh, Davey is a little shy. Just a, it's a little stutter step, he tells him. And I really love Richie's react, like response to him. He's like, you think I started this life ten minutes ago? A guy hands you a light envelope. It's just the beginning. And he tells him, I don't want to see your face at any of my games until you're caught up. And Which, Davey's by the way, is reasonable. Very reasonable. Yeah. And Richie, for being a character who... We are introduced. To, the first thing we see him do is completely unprovoked assault on Beansy and cripples the guy. And so, considering what we know this guy is capable of, he does it in a pretty sensitive fashion. Like, you almost get a sense that Richie likes the guy a little bit. Oh, I got that sense as well. He yeah. kids around with his kid in yeah. the store. You see him here every week, you know? Yeah, it's like, you know, I don't. I don't. Almost kind of like him in Richie April's way of saying, don't make me be a bad guy here. Right. This is as reasonable as Richie gets. This was, like, very Richie by the book. Yeah. Like, it was just like, ah, guy short on the envelope. Listen, don't play in any more games until I'm paid back. Totally reasonable. Yeah. Any any character making this request is a reasonable request. It might be the first indication, too, that Davy's attitude is far too cavalier. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. In his approach to both of these gangsters. Then we get this very fun scene. Yeah, deeply enjoyable scene at the fish store, yes. Yes, because it's, uh, you know, look... When you're writing a scene like this where you're delivering information, you you got to put it somewhere that's fun for the viewer. You This could have just been on the sidewalk outside Satriales, but they put it in this... 
bustling fish market. And while Chris is relaying this information to uh, Matt and Sean, he's scamming the fucking... I love Chris's, like, little scam on the scale. And he's his interaction with the... <laughs> trying to shit with the old ladies, you fucking hump. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Again, just, Patterson just nailing this. Some of the music that... Bup, 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 bup. Yeah, it keeps yeah, it yeah. moving really fast. Yeah, it's got a fast pace. Yeah, like it's just so well done. It's funny. There's funny dialogue here. These guys are such douchebags. Matt and Sean, we're bringing them back in now after a couple episode hiatus on them. Mounting resentment from Matt and Sean about being treated as the quote unquote piss boys. I, uh, but I it's wrote, like, what I wrote, the fuck do you think? Yeah, I wrote, yes, yes, you are fucking piss boys. That's <laughs> yeah. exactly what you are. It makes me laugh every time. I know it's coming. And I, I, but every time I watch this episode, and Chrissy is talk, just telling a story about uh, Silvio when he's gambling, which we're gonna get to in a second. He says, uh, you know, he was gambling with a guy named Fritzy, and then Sean interrupts, like, "Oh, Fritzy Nasty from Hoboken." Chris, is like, "Yeah, you know him." No, and shut the fuck up and let me finish. <laughs> <laughs> he just uh, was so anxious to, you know, these guys are just dying to get in on this world, and they're just, they're not having the success at the rate they would like to have the success. Also, just very funny dialogue in this scene. Like, uh, does it smell fishy? It's fish. fish. <laughs> Being used for pizza. Oh, let me smell it. All right, yeah. give me enough for 15 people and I think 10 pounds of shrimp? Yeah. It's a massive amount of shrimp. A lot yeah. of shrimp. Well, this scene and a lot of other scenes that surround it in terms of the chronology of this episode, I'd say seem pretty deliberate. That scene at the fish market, Polly and the Cop... Uh, Furio at the actual motel. Right, all setup scenes, yeah. All setup scenes, all playful, pretty funny. You're actually not quite ready, I don't think, for what this episode has in store. Mm. Even the, in the executive game itself, there's misdirection, because most of the drama is around Silvio being nutty, and Davy just kind of works his way in. The fallout ends up going in an entirely different direction. So these funny scenes are great, but what they seem to set up is something a bit more playful and maybe even light. The second half of the episode does not go that way. Yeah, yeah. totally. And so he he mentions this story that Silvio can be a sick fuck when he's gambling and he's just he's very and this is very real to life. Again, Frank Renzulli, I've mentioned this before. He's an old school like neighborhood guy. He grew up around some some characters uh, that were that were involved in this kind of thing. Mobsters are very superstitious, and I just like that they made this, you know, Silvio blames his bad luck off of this thing that Fritz may or may not have said, and he thought he said something, but he didn't, and that's it, and Silvio. So I just like that Silvio, who is the most level-headed character in Tony's crew, perhaps, is, like, you know, look out for him when he's gambling. Cause, sure. You know, so... And this acknowledgement that people are different when they're gambling. Yes. Right? So Davey presents himself as this attractive American dad type, but his his dark side comes out when he gambles. There are no limits when this man gambles. And even mm -hmm. for, yeah, like you said, level-headed Silvio becomes an animal. Yep. And we speaking of animals, we get Pauly and this cop, another fun payoff scene. Again, more more we're adding more gravitas and expectation to this executive game scene. Uh, Pauly pulls out the gun, very memorable. He just withdraws a gun and a cop we don't know that they're friends until they have the laugh together paulie cuts him off hey i got my own fucking problems gives him the payoff <laughs> no gunshots don't harass the tourists otherwise we got to take the call yep totally a fun scene uh we also i think right before right after that scene we get that really fun scene at uh titleman's hotel mm -hmm. right which is the first time we've seen titleman son of titleman the titleman yeah. hotel in general since denial anger acceptance episode three season one 
Yeah. Right. Yep. This is this is the uh, the motel that Tony got in. There are a lot of moments. Again, no our no spoiler policy is always in full effect. There are a lot of things in The Sopranos, and fans criticize it at times for this. I like it, and we'll get into why when they come up. There are things that The Sopranos just drops and never touches again, and there are other things that come back over and over and over and over and it adds weight to episodes that already happened when they do it right this motel the world the line in denial anger acceptance that they're all worried about is that once you get them in you'll never get them out and we're not seeing Titleman here they didn't bring that actor back but it adds more depth to that episode retroactively yeah. because it's like oh we're not forgetting about this this is this is a place that they still are in control of and dominate and right. have corrupted. I don't remember there being prostitutes walking around the main lobby <laughs> right. back in season one. Right, as the clerk says, you guys are ruining this place. Yeah. And they, they have. Uh, again, this is more of Tony's decay, right? The fallout of anyone he touches, right? Well, the entitlement kid is another kid who's paying for it. He's, he's paying for his father's sins and also getting whatever dividends there are. Yeah. Which is his beanie spinning when the <laughs> girl works his thing. Yeah. Um, but kids paying for their parents and their excesses is going to be big in this episode. Another fun thing about this place is that it does not reflect the gangster's view of the executive game that we've made it to the big time. It's mm. kind of a shitty little motel. But what it reflects is that they want to have the run of the place and they want privacy. Yeah. So it's interesting, again, that underworld vibe where they're in this shitty little motel, but... Frank Sinatra Jr. is playing with them, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, based on our expectations, this game should occur at the least in a nice hotel room, right? These are all men of means. They can afford much more than this, but we are set in a shitty motel. I, that's just how it is. Correct. So, great moment there. Furio drops his line, no bitcha to me, which is very funny. <laughs> well said. No bitcha to me. And we go from there to... The game. Mm -hmm. I wrote, these scenes are exciting, and these build-up scenes were a lot of fun. They delivered the information we needed. We touched down on some of our fun gangster characters, Paulie, Furio, and it, yeah, I, had, I just had a great time. And then here we are at the game. Uh, we see some familiar faces and some unfamiliar faces. Many people probably recognize Frank Sinatra Jr. right away. If you've never seen Frank Sinatra Jr., the show tells you that he's frank sinatra jr and that is the real frank sinatra jr playing himself and we got some other characters i, I love that he's the very fact that he would agree to cameo in the show is just he's very coy about his father's involvement in the mob yes you know if you're agreeing as frank sinatra jr to, to do a cameo on the sopranos oh why because everybody kind of wink wink nudge nudge knows frank sinatra is part of the mob or involved in some way absolutely yeah so that's i guess great. what's the harm at this point is the point right yeah exactly i mean it's it's he leaned into it. It's something right. that you can either like try to ignore or lean into, and he's very smart to lean into it. Right. He probably had a great time on this. Set, I made he, a nice uh, he had a fucking blast. There's yeah, no way yeah. he didn't have a blast. And obviously, <laughs> he was probably a fan of the show beforehand. Right. Yeah. So you got him there. You got uh, Doctor Freed, who we learn is hilarious, a, a very funny character to have here, and also just a funny actor doing a good job with that role. Doctor Freed, the cop doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. You got Sunshine, the dealer. Uh, also very funny yeah. and I actually I love dealers that narrate the game because it makes it more of an event it's <laughs> yes. fun yeah great I, he's a guy I'd want dealing my games I love his look I love his voice he's, love him you got some familiar faces here you got Johnny Sack you got Paul you got Silvio at the table it's uh this looks like a you know if I had the money and I you know didn't 
have moral quandary with funding gangsterism. I, I'd like to sit at this table and play a few hands with these guys, but, you know. Davey, uh, well, first of all, Tony, I love this little beat where Tony, uh, you know, especially because we know about Matthew and Sean that they feel like piss boys and unappreciated, that Tony messes up his name. He says, Mike, Mike. <laughs> and then Chris has to go, Matthew. And then, he, you know, looks and uh, he tries to call him T. He corrects him, Tony. You know, get a couple macanudos and, you know, food and all that. So just fun little color there. And then Davey shows up. I like Tony's comment, by the way, about uh, if I never hear that song again, it'll be Carmela dragging me to that play. <laughs> They're talking about uh, the kids doing <laughs> that um, song. But Davey shows up and he wants in the game. He uh, very clearly figured yeah. out where this thing was being held, and yeah, and this is this is where Tony fails, I think, a little bit. When this guy showed up, he just he needed a stronger hand. He needed to say, "No, you cannot play." But for whatever reason, I just think Tony just he likes this guy. He thinks, you know, what's the harm? I'm only lending out five. Sure, you yeah, know. five boxes is easy. Now, of course, bearing in mind, he doesn't know that this guy's already into Richie. Correct. That that's very clear. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, that's what I was saying earlier. I don't know that he really realizes that this guy has such a bad gambling problem. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't think that Tony would exploit him like that. This is a friend. This is the father of my daughter's friend. You know, we. Yep. I knew him as a kid. I don't think he knows he's addicted. Then yeah. when he finds out the way he does, I don't know if you guys saw it this way, but I was kind of thinking, does this make him even more angry at Davy? Oh, hundred percent. Right? Yeah. Does it make it even worse? Oh, yeah. Tony is, we'll talk about it when we get there, but Tony, to me, is very clearly disgusted that he put Tony in this position and that, you know, I think just Tony also looks down on him as beneath him just for the way he's conducting himself. Just that's yeah. not Tony or anybody's vision of what a man should be. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm, we'll circle back to more of the game, I'm sure, but when we when Tony wakes at 9 a.m. the next morning and they, they tell him that uh, Davey's into them for 45 boxes of ZD, $45,000. Um, I, I, yeah, I think, I think Tony knows in that moment that he's made a mistake, uh, that this is something that's going to impact him. But also, I, I also got a, a scale of just how valuable this game is. This is at least a million dollar event. Mm. So that was, that was interesting to see as well. But 45 is so much exponentially worse than owing Richie, what was it, eight? And Davey's attitude is not exponentially more worried. Do you know what I mean? Like, this guy seems to somehow think, like, ah, this will be okay. Yeah. You know, unbelievable. Boy, the know. luck on that Silvio, huh? Oh, my God, man. Yeah, Your so fucking good. life is over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's watching and saying, I could use a Schwitz. You want a Schwitz? It's like, I would put every dime you were about to put into that Schwitz into your fucking piggy bank, pal. Yes. Good Lord. But, yeah, yeah, we're going to get there. The game happens. He we get some the, the abuse of Matt. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> let's talk about that we get this amazing thing we get a little bit of uh, Davey at the table talking he's doing okay his money's good and um, we get to see and I love that Tony sets Matthew up for this <laughs> let's talk about the Silvio thing Tony knew exactly what he was doing yep he knew that he wouldn't he would step in to make sure it wouldn't get completely out of hand <laughs> if Silvio got violent but <laughs> this is a great moment and and at this point, we're set, we've settled at this point in season two, we feel like we know these characters. You know, we know who Silvio is to an extent. We know who Paulie is. We know how Chris and Tony... In general, you can kind of predict how they're going to react to things and how they're going to respond to things. And I love that they dropped this surprise 
with Silvio because he is just uh, you know, he's getting angry. He's like spitting out these kind of nasty comments. He's he's very clearly down. <laughs> he's not liking the way Davy's playing. He's, uh, he's, he's and then and then at that crucial moment when it's boiling and the hand is reaching its apex, he sends Matthew to sweep up a bunch of and a lot by the way he's dropping a lot of food onto the floor, <laughs> swiping up this cheese and Syl just gets up what the fuck are you doing and loses it in one of the funniest. This is so good. This has to be in the top five, like Sopranos comedy moments. If I were to make a compilation. <laughs> Um, it might be edged out by one scene in season four for me as one of the funniest scenes in The Sopranos, but this one really, really... Silvio losing it, the things he says to him. I like the way he delivers the line. Like, he can't even finish his words. He's sleeping the cheese and trying to get the... Leave the fucking cheese there! <laughs> well well acted by Stevie Van Zandt, a guy who does no acting training. Just fucking delivers this. The st- Matthew just has to stand there and take it. Tony is smirking in the corner laughing. <laughs> They're uh, all laughing, yeah. I think. <laughs> uh, any thoughts on Silvio, Matthew, Bevilacqua, and the way and this hand shakes out? Davy ends up winning the hand with a flush. Yeah, it's a fun bit. Davy is on that streak at that point. I guess overnight is when he starts to really go downhill. But also, Silvio's bit, it's really fun. It is one of the funniest moments I think I've ever seen on the show. Yeah. Um, and it's a response to the frustration of feeling like a loser, which again is our pull quote. Yeah. But it's also a bit of misdirection. This is not important to the plot. No. What ends up ha- like and Silvio what lost two grand, two two boxes came out of my pocket. That's not a lot. Yeah. At the end, he's with everybody else, luxuriating in the afterglow of the fact that they now run the executive game. What happens in this sequence is Davy loses everything, except mm-hmm. that Davy is sitting there in that sort of like in that hand anyway. He's lying in wait. He slow rolls Silvio. Actually, so this again, not unlike Richie Aprile, something big and theatrical captures our attention, and this guy is unraveling himself in this yeah. game. I love the. I also love the comments he's throwing around the table. He was abusing everybody. It wasn't just. I mean, he really goes off on Matthew because Matthew has zero status in this room whatsoever. But he's just like to sunshine. He's just kidding. Shut the fuck up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. he, tells, he tells Tony to fuck off. Yeah, fuck you too. <laughs> just stay with Michael Mann tonight. Uh, he said, Doctor Dick. Jesus, do you ever shut the fuck? Can you blow that fucking smoke somewhere else? <laughs> Why don't you go fix a fucking dick or whatever it is you do? He's just going off on everybody. Oh, it's great. Silvio is just amazing in this moment, and so good. Yeah, they 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 set up. This is like putting the gun in the drawer in Act One, and boy, do they deliver on it. They they told you Silvio's a sick fuck when he's gambling, and boy, do you see it. And there it is. And uh, so yeah, but as Paul said, the narrative point of all this is Davy's up a little bit and seems like he's doing okay and then the game goes into the wee hours of the night and eventually the next morning Tony's waking up and he is as happens when you sit too long at a table you got to know when to hold him know when to fold him Artie the difference between Davy and Artie is when Artie was up in Richie's game he, he called it quit when he was ahead yep Charmaine I'll have my balls on the menu but Davy did not have that. He was up for a little bit. He maybe. He, what's sad too is he might have even made enough to pay off Richie. We don't know. Like he, we get the sense. I'm he sure was, he did. Yeah, he could have stepped away from the table. He had a good run there for a bit. He tells Tony the next morning, uh, if he had gotten up and just paid off Richie. And the problem is, you're if you have a gambling addiction, 
you aren't okay with that. You're not thinking of it as, oof, I broke even and I should consider myself lucky. Right. You want to be up. Yeah, when you have a gambling problem and you're on tilt like that, uh, you just keep thinking about how you're going to get back to even, but that never happens. Um, mm. Those people have an illness, you yeah. know, when you have that kind of gambling addiction. I mean, that's, you know, I almost felt like if this show had aired on network, it would have been preceded or followed by like a disclaimer, like if you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call yeah. this hotline because this is the this is classic behavior for the gambler, you know. It's it's all you get those. It's the same thing. Like these, some people don't think of it as as, as big, like as real, quote unquote, of an addiction as uh, say drugs or alcohol because those have chemical properties. But the human brain is set up in some ways. And look, I'm not a gambling addict, but you know what, I get it. Sure. You're you're at the casino. The lights are bright. You have those chips in front of you. You want more. You feel like you know. I I get that pull. It your brain is looking for those dopamine hits. It's it's and and, and it's you know people can be addicted to different things. You can swap out uh, different things. People are addicted to sex. People are addicted to pornography. People are addicted to food. These things that give you pleasure in a rush. Those dopamine hits. Those adrenaline hits. You're chasing it. Yep. And it's very powerful. Don't don't discount your own body chemistry when it comes to addiction. Absolutely. And Davey, uh, unfortunately, is just a very sick individual. This is somebody who really has no business gambling uh, at this point. I'm not anti-gambling. I think, you know, if you, you like anything, you win some, you lose some. When you, A responsible gambler is either so wealthy it's not going to matter if they drop 10 grand at a table... Or a responsible gambler makes a trip where you budget out your gambling money. That's what I do when I go to a sure. casino. Well, it's like, here's $500. If I were anywhere other than Atlantic City, that 500 would be for dinner and a show and others. But my my activity for the night is gambling. Yes. If I walk away with more, great. So, if I lose, that's my money. Right. I had a good time. To me, this is where Tony fails. Yeah. Because when Davey shows up at the game, even if the red flags weren't going up at that point, when he tells him... Listen, you need five thousand dollars just to sit, and he doesn't have it. Yeah, he says I need to borrow it from you to play. That's that's where your sirens go off, you know. Mm. Uh, but additionally, Tony knows this guy; he's not a stranger. Yeah, okay, he owns a sporting goods business. Maybe there's some good cash in that, but he can't roll with the guys that are sitting at that table. They have that kind of income. Yeah, I feel like Tony should have had a better guess as to what as to what his friend here is worth. I wouldn't have let him sit. I, I blamed. I do blame Tony a bit here. I really do. Well, and it, this is why the episode I mentioned earlier at the top that it made me feel gross. It's like ultimately he has a predatory instinct, and this 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 thing is a parasitic entity, and it's a gross entity, and it and it it saps, it 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 corrupts and saps all that it touches. Yeah. And we're gonna get to how it does so in just a minute here, but we have a very fun moment. Uh, you're watching the show and it's just one of those you feel the energy in the room dip Johnny Sack is you know in an undershirt asleep on the <laughs> asleep couch, on the couch. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Tony's passed out he's kind of you know there but the game is still going they're still betting they're asking for coffee they're getting you know yeah let's go alright yeah I'll have a coffee tone put some buka in it they're still playing and in walks the consequence Richie mm-hmm. April that's it and uh, you know has a little fun uh, walk around the room look at this fucking lineup teases Johnny Sack and then he turns and boom David Proval just gives that shift and the fuck are you doing here just quietly softly hi Rich <laughs> and approaches him and it's shot well like the reactions you feel the energy in the room just 
it turns into a dangerous situation very quickly. This exchange with Christopher was very interesting, too. Uh, he tells him, I got a hard-on for you already. Give me a reason. Which is, first of all, one of the most fucking gangster things anybody's ever said. And second of all, it's like, you know, oof, it's just good. It's good. It's good stuff. It's fun to watch as a fan of this genre and a fan of this show. But uh, Richie is uh, not fucking around here, and Tony has to physically pull him out of the room. Yeah, which also ruins the game. Uh, mm-hmm. You do get the impression as the viewer that, yeah, the energy was down, but they were going to keep playing. Yeah. The game would have continued. Richie, is, Richie effectively ends the executive game. Yeah. Uh, which is a, a shame. Uh, Tony has to reassert his authority here. He has to lay down the ground rules on Richie, and he has to say that, like, listen, you can't lay a hand on this guy here, and specifically, he's going to pay me back before he pays you back. Mm. Right? So uh, Tony reasserts his authority, but he's losing ground with Richie over time. Uh, This is not the first time he's had to discipline Richie in some way, talking to him like this. And while, you know, he is is trying to, you know, impose upon Richie that, you know, there's a line of respect that you just crossed, his authority's weakening over Richie and what he's really be able to, what he's really able to tell him he can and can't do. Yeah. Uh, Richie's line is very telling, you know, Tony, I'm getting sick of this holier than thou act and I'm not the only one. Yeah. You know, he's... Yeah, it's a good point. And I think that, as you pointed out, Jordan... Again, because, perhaps because of the theatrics, uh, Richie comes in, he effectively ends the game, he acts without thinking, Tony, I think, says, don't make me fucking embarrass you, takes him outside, and but again, on that theme of Tony's uh, authority or total control weakening, when Richie talks about how Davy is into him for, I think, 7,000, you see that it takes Tony off guard. And yeah. then he didn't know that, mm. so it and so Tony has to sort of reset, and it went, but even when he tries to get his footing back, it's not as strong. And we did, and there's just little, th- I like little things where Richie spits on the ground before yeah. he leaves, and we see that this tension is not dissipated. We're and gonna have to deal with it going forward. Not something I'm gonna not not something I'm gonna preface many sentences with as we watch the show. But to be fair to Richie, I'd be mad too. Yeah, he said what he says to Tony is not wrong. Uh, this motherless fuck is into me for eight large. He's got money to play here. Send him out. Right. I get it. He's mad. He, he, this guy, if somebody owed me $8,000 and they were sitting at a high-end poker game, even not even in the, just a gangster way, like if I just, if I somebody came to me and needed $8,000 and I lent it to them and they were fucking gambling at a high-level fucking poker, I'd be annoyed too. Absolutely. But the, this is the mob. Tony's the boss. There are rules to be had here. And Richie went about it in his classic impulsive way. And uh, Tony had to assert his dominance and control over the game. Uh, We get, again, you guys talked about it. I don't know how much more we need to say, but Davey's back inside. Like he wasn't just threatened to be stabbed in the eye by one of the most dangerous men in the show. Uh, (laughs) And he's just washing his face. Yeah, I had a good run there. Hey, you want to get a schwitz? Uh, You know, and Tony's just like, I'm going to give you two days to get me my $45,000. Yeah, Davey, for whatever reason, he just doesn't understand the trouble he's in. Uh, Maybe it's just some kind of... It's almost psychotic, actually. It's like a psychotic disconnect from the consequences of his actions. Is it some kind of disassociative way to avoid the consequence of his addiction? Or does he perhaps think that his friendship with Tony will save him? I don't think he just doesn't get that. I don't think it's that. I I mean, I don't think he thinks that he and Tony are that good friends. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, we don't really know this character that well. This is not someone who's important in Tony's life. Tony likes him and they're friends, but they're not, like, friends' friends. This is not Artie Bucco. Mm. You know, I think he's this cavalier every time. He's lost money before. 
this is not a new addiction, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we're going to get a later scene where he takes, you know, his kid's car or whatever, and his wife looks on in horror as this happens, but that can't be the first time she's experienced this kind of behavior from him. He's lived his life like this, mm-hmm. you know? I think that's just how he accepts it within himself. He says, yep, I have to live with myself as a part of this, and I'm just going to kind of go about my business as if it's normal. As you said, Jordan, early on, there is no such thing as the happy wanderer. Is he trying to actualize it? Like, oh, I'm just going through. Yeah. But like, these moments will come Like up. Tony tries to actualize the strong, silent type archetype. Right. Like, if I pretend everything's okay, then it's okay. But it's fucking not okay, dude. And neither it's of them not are okay. okay. That's great. We get this um, little moment at the end where they're all kind of celebrating, having some champagne. Silvio's in much better spirits. I love that moment. Like, we just saw him going absolutely psychotic on everybody <laughs> because Davey was beat him at a hand, at a particularly tense hand of, of poker. <laughs> like, Silvio... He's a pissedest kid, is it a game? Eating a sandwich, <laughs> laughing, he's just in good spirits. It's totally fine. I like them uh, talking about, you know, Junior chasing him away, and then we just get the satisfying... It's a sad, it feels like a very satisfying scene, these guys sitting together like, we're the regime now. It must. It, it probably must feel a lot like you accomplished something big in your career. You're a Broadway, you're an actor, and you get, you book that Broadway show, and you kind of like stand in the empty theater at the end of the night, like, I made it here. You yeah. Know? Or, mm-hmm. uh... I imagine probably a president does that. They have a moment when they're alone in the Oval Office for the first time, like, wow, here I am. Sure, the team after winning the big game. It's yeah, just, this is a yeah, moment yeah. of reflection and accomplishment. It's a nice moment. Yeah. It's uh, one of the few nice moments in the show. Yeah, Tony and his crew are <laughs> on top of it. Uh, but at what cost? And that's what we're coming to. Next scene, Tony's sleeping. We hear the bass uh, of Eric's guitar, bass guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's sleeping at 3 in the afternoon. He was up, you know, who knows this... We're, I mean, we're only shown one day, but if Eric, I mean, if Davey borrowed $45,000, I suppose this game could have been more than one night. Who knows how long the game actually was, you know, we saw a night and then a morning. Maybe it was overnight, maybe it was two, three nights. But either way, the game went on a very long time, and Tony's exhausted. And, uh, he, you know, bangs on the door. Uh, I really love uh, the uh, moment between Meadow and Tony here. He's like, I've been working all night. And, he's like, and she's like, you up now? He's like, yeah. Good, close the door. And he's just, hey! <laughs> like, the, the way he just kind of snaps at her there. It's funny. The, uh, throw, these characters throwing vowels at each other. A, O. It's always great. And then uh, she drops a little bit of a bombshell that Tom, Uncle Tom called. Uh, Uncle Tom died, yeah. Tom Sr. died. Tom is, I'm sorry, you're right. Yeah, Tom, Tom is Bar- Barbara's husband. Right. Who we met very briefly uh, in episode two of this season. Or maybe, no, episode one of this season. Uh, Tony's other sister, Barbara, her husband's father died. And um, (laughs) very funny bit of dialogue here that Meadow just didn't ask any questions. And Tony is absolutely verklempt at that, (laughs) that she would just not ask how, why. And then we find out in the next therapy scene that uh, gust of wind. How about that transition? Right. Closing door into... Yeah. A gust of wind just came and just blew him off the roof. He was 65. You know, so he was probably on the verge of enjoying a retirement because mm. uh, that, that age is very specific. And, uh, and a gust of wind just blows him off the roof, which um, there's there's no clearer symbol for, like, the, the hand of cruel, random fate. Mm. That literal wind, like, winds of fate just come and blow you as a gust of wind off the roof. Um, and this is tying into the rest of the episode talking about, uh, you know, this idea of the strong sound type, the happy wanderer, right? Or, or just the idea of the gambler, right? The idea of, like, uh, playing the game of life. But any moment, 
it can all be taken away from you. You can just be blown away uh, by fate, and, and you have no control over it. Total control is never possible Yeah. when something like a gust of wind can just blow you off the roof. And that is, of course, why we titled our episode that, because yeah. it fits uh, so appropriately with the theme, not only of the show, but of this, or not only of this episode, but of the whole show. Sure, and we see people struggling to, to get some control. We see Richie struggling for control. Davey is certainly spiraling, but he's struggling for a sense of control, a balance to get back even. Tony's struggling for control. But you can't get it because any moment a change agent comes along, right? A gust of wind blows yeah. you from the roof. Sure. And well, and in this scene, I think on that theme of control and what a person can deal with and how they approach life is, of course, what Melfi is, I think, tacking onto when she says Tom Sr. has joined the ranks of the unlucky. Mm. You don't have to pummel his ass. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, he tells her about the retarded uncle. Same. You know. she, she does the same prompt with him. Can you join the rest of the douchebags yeah, now? Yeah. Is it enough of a sad tragedy that you can join the ranks of the douchebags? Because as much <laughs> right. as Tony posits that and purports that I'm more the happy wanderer, he comes in here and bitches about everything. Yeah. It's always like stuff that's on top of his head or stuff that's bothering him, of course. And so Melfi, I think, is trying to get him to acknowledge this. Yeah, and, and she can't help him until he feels at least somewhat better about going there. You know what I mean? That And that's where they're at because they had this interruption that happened at the end of season one in their work. And, you know, they're trying to get back to some kind of equilibrium, and he is not in a good place for therapy right now. He's so messed up that they have to kind of re refigure their whole apparatus here in therapy. It's interesting to watch. And then we get into the funeral of uh, Tom Sr. And <laughs> <laughs> Livia with a commanding, Oscar-worthy performance. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, crying on her way in for a man she... Probably barely knew. And Tony just staring straight forward. Well, fungal it too. Like, well, <laughs> fuck you too. Uh, and <laughs> um, I like uh, we haven't this week and last week we didn't get as much of Carmela. She had a big commendatory presence, and she's had like a scene or two in these last uh, couple episodes. But I like Carmela's role in this scene of keeping Tony calm, keeping the family. Like, you know, these people are not here to see the Sopranos kill each other. Which is right. funny, because I think many in the audience are. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, Tony is... Again, Frank Renzulli drops a laugh in every scene. Fucking Betty Davis back there. At uh, Livia's <laughs> wailing and crying. And Carmela being very reasonable. We were bound to bump into them at some function. And, you know, no doubt Janice knew exactly what she was doing, wheeling Livia up there. And, of course. You know. So, yep, we had that. And then Richie and Tony abscond into a different room. Again, more humor. Uh, Richie says, I don't think you can smoke in here. Tony's like asking the corpse, hey, do you mind? <laughs> and uh, Tony lays down the rule. Tony lays down the law. This is a follow-up to their parking lot scene. And he put, he, 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 you know, he says, uh, I don't make the rules. They've always been there. And then he taxes him. And his tax is that Tony gets his money before. Right, Richie. that's the scene where it takes place, right? And yeah. Richie is very clearly unhappy with that. That's not... You know, Richie says, it's your ball, you make the rules, so he's going to eat it. But he's uh, he's not happy with it at all. And uh, we find out what is going on behind closed doors in the next scene. This is the scene in the car. Yeah. Right, Olivia, sorry, Livia, rather, is uh, clearly pretending to be asleep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sure she's listening to this whole conversation. <laughs> and um, we get, we're getting a little Lady Macbeth action from Janice here. Yes, uh, just sure. kind of Richie... Obviously dissatisfied with the way things have been going for him. 
But he's, he's, he's giving Tony some credit, saying, look, the guy brought me back, he gave me 50 grand to put on the street, but she's saying that's not enough. Yeah, he's looking for a reason to not flip the game board. He's not looking for a reason to not just flip the table. And he's saying, you know, Tony gave me 50 grand. You know, he's probably going through in his head, this fucking guy disrespects me again and again. Cross the line, he's insulting me for dating a sister. He fucked me over on that beansy thing. Now he's costing me money with this Davy guy. And he's thinking, like, well, what's my reason to not totally go apeshit here and, and janice does not help at all uh just fifty thousand. uh i guess his father gave uh, some guy fifty thousand when he got out of jail back in the 70s and um fifty thousand mailmen make more than that yeah after a year of work by the way janice <laughs> yeah but yeah this is just uh it's very telling of of where things stand with Richie and Janice. And we knew that this would be trouble when they started fanning the flames again a couple episodes ago. And here they are. This is exactly what we, the audience, feared, is that these two coming together would mean um, dire consequences for the rest of the people in the show. Mm -hmm. Moving on here, we get the sporting goods store where Davey is in the office and we uh, Tony comes just charging in, probably walked right past whoever was standing at the counter. And, um, you know, we, Davey's ducking him. He says, what's this fucking appointment you got when my guy comes to see it? Tony sent somebody to pick up the first envelope. And um, Davey is just not, uh, he's starting to get it. It's sinking in. He can tell that Tony's very upset. And uh, this scene is shot very well. It's in a tight space. The shot of Tony is really looming up at him, and Davy looks really kind of cowering and pathetic in the corner. And he has to slap him around, and it's pathetic, and it's sad, and it's hard to watch because we saw that there was a friendship and a rapport here at the beginning of this episode. Sure, and, uh, he has to rough Davy up. Intentional, I think that the space is very small because James Gandolfini is a very uh, intimidating physical presence, mm -hmm. right? So he really just masters that space and yeah. uh, just really just bats Davy around. Yeah, Patterson, John Patterson is a. Uh... One of my favorite directors of Sopranos episodes, and uh, th that's just one example of him using the space and some simple shots. It really seems in this scene that, as you said, Chris, it's hard to watch, that one of the things that really, I think, sets Tony off is some of that happy talk and, and Davey trying to appeal to them both being dads. And I think the kind of normalcy, maybe that happy wanderer thing, that this guy still needs a fucking pummeling because mm. um, he's not getting it. Yeah. So yeah, it was pretty. It's still rough to watch, even yeah. after all these years. Yeah. Mm. We go from that into a fascinating scene that, and it's fascinating because it's two kind of legitimate businessmen having a sit-down scene together with no mob guys in it, and uh, you know, for a mob show, that's it, it's interesting. I like this scene between Davey and Artie, where he goes to Artie for help and. You know, Artie's a good guy. He's a very endearing character. Everyone likes Artie Bucco. I don't know anyone who watches this show and doesn't love Artie Bucco from the from the fucking jump. Uh, and Artie is being a good friend here. Did you knock up the Tybo broad? What is it you can tell me? Uh, <laughs> that shows where Artie's predilections are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That would be Artie's fuck up if yeah. if if he ran a sporting goods store, certainly. <laughs> where he would well, he would, he, he would try to fuck the Tybo broad. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, tells him he needs money. Does Artie is Artie lying about this roof? Yes. He, yeah. You think so? Yes. Why doesn't he want to give Davey money? Because he knows... Does he know Davey has a problem, perhaps? Well, let's just address the, the, the honest part of this. I don't think Artie just has 20 grand lying right. around. He's not a man of means. Yeah, he owns this restaurant, but he's you know he's pumped his whole life into trying to get this place open. And 
I don't think he would ever get 20 grand past Charmaine. Right. He's not going to put his... more what that's about. Yeah, he's not going to stick his neck out for this guy. And I think he's sensing, like, 20 grand. Like, I like you, man, but I don't, I don't know 20 grand like you. Yeah. And maybe what he's grappling with is that he can't do that, but he does know that it's serious. Yeah. When the guy mentions that it's Tony. And then he says it's Tony, and Artie's like, oh, boy, Dave. Oh, Jesus, Davey. Like, Artie knows what that means. Um, and... Even if it wouldn't mean it for him, I guess he knows. Yeah. Yeah. And I said it in our last episode that there was something I wanted to talk about Artie and Charmaine in this episode. And this is it. Because there has to, as a, every time Charmaine is on the screen, and it's in, you have to think this way because she is so deliberately abrasive and loud and, you know, outright mean at times to Artie. But she does it to make sure that Artie doesn't get into, Artie could very easily, not gambling, but Artie could very easily get into some kind of shitty arrangement with oh, Tony. Yes. Without Charmaine, Artie would be in trouble. Yes. And so Artie knows what it means to owe Tony Soprano $20,000. Because, yeah. you know, as abrasive and quote-unquote bitchy as Charmaine can be, she he needs her. And she has done him wonders uh, by keeping him on the straight and narrow, even if he doesn't always see it or appreciate it. Yep. You know, you got to think Artie went home that night counting his lucky stars that he didn't owe Tony 20 grand because oh, yeah. Davey's in some deep shit. Well, he actually owes Tony much more than that, but 20 grand might hold him off for a little while. And, uh, yeah, uh, the next scene is also yeah, kind these, of hard to watch. Yeah, these last couple scenes, hard to watch, I agree, are kind of quick. Yeah, they're rapid. This is a sequence. Yeah. That's kind of... Um, a lot of this one is done with one shot. Patterson does this great shot with the car pulling up and swinging around this corner and Davey gets out and he sees the mud, on the the mud tracks the on the kid's car and walks into the house. Patterson does it all with this and it has this tension because there's no cuts. It's really well done. Yeah. And we did uh, we did maybe skip over because we're going through the episode. We skipped over a very brief scene there with was Meadow a, and Eric in the Jeep. So yeah, we saw it the Jeep. A, it was an establishing scene in the Jeep. They talk, they're talking about... A friend of theirs who got into college, and they imply that it was because her mother was black, and you know, like they have that quick scene, but they establish that Eric has this Jeep and takes Meadow to school sometimes, and you know, so this Jeep has been established already. So we know that's Eric's Jeep. He pulls up, he looks at the mud, goes in, starts yelling. This is totally unfair, and I, I Eric, of course it is. Eric, you know, um, we yeah, don't hope, know much I hope about. this guy enjoyed the sympathy that he got for the first forty-five minutes of this episode yeah. because. Whoosh, yeah. He tells the kid, responsibility is everything. Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I warned you and warned you, Eric. Like, Tony warned him while his thousand while his times. Wife to get both me. looks on in total horror, but also is supporting, it seems to be supporting her husband's decision by telling her son that he can't talk to his father like that. Yeah. But, good God, she must know. Listen, the scene that doesn't happen, right? She must know that this is some part of horrible gambling. There's no way this is only now revealing itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I think the scene might end on her look. Yeah, that she's like, yeah, she's grasping it. Yeah, yeah. And Eric, you know, we don't know enough about him as a character to know whether he is. Uh, you know, Sopranos will sometimes uh, make somebody who is also a victim also very unsympathetic for other reasons. But I, I you know. I feel for this kid. He, he, no, no high schooler wants to lose their fucking car. That is awful. Oh yeah, it's just awful. And and you know, off roading and, and especially as Paul so brilliantly pointed out, the hypocrisy of it. Yep. And then again, great direction and editing here. Patterson opens up the next scene. Boom! Literally and metaphorically taking the shield off of Meadows' eyes to show her something that is going to be in a horrifying on a deeper level 
gets her he he gets her the Jeep right away. Just yep. just gets her doesn't sell it and trade it for a different car. Brings her Eric's actual Jeep, which she is excited about at first cuz who wouldn't be uh, at that age especially. And then gets in and realizes what it is and runs upstairs and then has this difficult scene that I hate watching because it's I love watching because it's great drama but I hate watching it because it's just it's rough and I feel for Meadow very much in the scene and Tony just fucking has a moment of unbridled honesty which he so rarely does. I was gonna say there is no more masking what it is I do or who it is I am. He made a bet. He lost. He made another bet. He lost again. You know. Yep. And, uh, you know, I'll eat it before I give it back. I'm going to say, you don't want it, I'll sell it to pussy, and I'll use the money to, you know, buy clothes and food and CDs and all the other shit I've been buying since the day you were born. And he tells her, you know, everything I have comes from the work I do. Everything this family has comes from the work I do. So take that moral high ground and go sleep in the fucking bus station. (sighs) Doesn't get more blunt for Tony Soprano, especially when it comes to dealing with his family. This is a very rare thing. Tony is opening up something for Meadow here. This may or may not get explored in a, in a future episode, so I, I don't want to get too much into that, but there's a lot to un- unpack there as to why he did this, why he's so honest with Meadow. And uh, just one last thing I comment on before I, I open it up to you guys here. I love that little moment after Tony finally leaves. Carmela's like, tired. Tony, that's enough. And he leaves. And Carmela looks at Meadow and we're feeling bad for her and Edie Falco's so good. She gets so much across with just a look or a gesture. And that's, you know, she's such a talented actor in that way. What her look read to me was she chose Tony. She chose the the, the moral compromise that he's going to do all these awful things. And, and from that suffering, her lifestyle is going to be supported. Meadow didn't. Meadow didn't make that choice. And she's just as stuck with it. Yeah. So... Thoughts on this? I, I think your interpretation of that look from Carmela is dead on. She feels mm-hmm. nothing but sympathy for Meadow. You can only feel sympathy for Meadow in this scene. She's totally trapped by circumstances that are beyond her control. And yeah, it's true. Carmela has the one that's made the devil's deal, uh, not Meadow. Uh, and Meadow is suffering as a result. It's the sins of the father, you know? Yeah. I th- and, and Patterson, again, doing great work with those looks because I think then it ends on Jamie Lynn Siegler also doing great work, taking the hit. Maybe she wants to cry, but big girls don't cry. And she just takes it mm-hmm. and has to live with it. And even a winner feels like a loser in this episode, even when you get the dividends of your dad's work, because it was in such a scenario wherein you bucked and then he had to lay it down and he wanted to tell you, this is what it is and this is what I do and this is why we have what we have. Meadow gets certain dividends out of it, yeah, but she can't uh, live in blissful ignorance. Right. And we start and end this episode at Verbum Day High School with uh, Cabaret Night. Tony's sitting there. Of course, any fucking opportunity to insult or provoke Richie is taken at this point. He has to make fun of his flowers. <laughs> didn't, uh, didn't I see those at the wake the other night? <laughs> and, uh, you know, Livia, again, wheeled up by Janice. It's the, 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 the wake... They're in the same positions. Yes, <laughs> they were in. And what's what's really funny about this too is that uh, at this point we now have seen that Janice is actively working with Richie to yes. undermine Tony. That is specifically happening. The wake 
for her daughter's husband's father, it's understandable maybe that Janice would wheel Livia in there if we believed that she had the best of intentions. Meadow performing at her high school that Tony pays for her to go to is not something Janice needed to take Livia to. This was very clearly to just continue that it, it's just sort of the show's way of reminding us that like you know this 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 triumvirate back here Olivia J- Janice and Richie are here and they're hovering just behind Tony as he's uh living his life and they brought a bigger flower arrangement than Tony did yeah um, of course I mean Tony at the end just I felt like he was dark helmet like I'm surrounded by assholes like <laughs> he just, like Davy is there so he's got to deal with that his mother his sister, Richie, they're all there, and he's like, and he's dealing with all this stuff, and of course it's coming to a head with Eric dropping out of the cabaret. And Eric and and Meadow, they had a friendship, and it's been poisoned by this. Yep, and I totally feel for Eric backstage, and uh, yeah, it's a shitty thing he did. As a performer, it's not something I would do, Mm -hmm. but totally understandable. You know, insults her for having, you know, her gangster father and what he does, and she explains. You feel feel bad for her too. I, I didn't ask for the jeep. I you know I didn't know it was going to be your jeep. I, I knew it was yours when I saw it. All, all that dialogue is very real there. Uh, those emotions bubbling over. Of course, the 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 kids are paying for the things their fathers are doing. They have no say in the matter. It's utterly criminal. Yep. yep. And out of this shit scenario, Meadow gets the lucky break. Right. More solo. More ill-gotten gains. Yeah. Well, that's mm. just it. It's such a poetic end of this episode because it's it's. Just another nail in the coffin that demonstrates that you know, oh that's a lucky break. Those aren't accidental words. Right. That's a, in, in an episode about luck and gambling. The Sopranos' success and fortune will always come at the expense of others, always, because that's how he makes his living. Hmm. Any final thoughts on the Happy Wanderer? Wonderful episode. I think the episode does a really nice job thematically by kind of centering everything around the executive game and just kind of peeling it back from that and saying, look, this is all kind of a card game and the game is deeply rigged, <laughs> you know, and, and it's not, not a fair game, this life that we're, we're living. And even when you're, as we've said a few times in this episode, even when you're winning at the game, it's at someone else's expense always. And we could say that's all of life, but it's especially this life. Mm. And yeah, we can root for Tony and his friends and we can smile and we can toast our champagne with them, but uh, ultimately they feast on the heartache of others. Um, and Tony may reach for this idea of the happy wanderer or of, um, you know, this, this uh, you know, Gary Cooper type, but he can never really be that, especially not when his business is so fraught with what he has to deal with. Uh, that, that's so well said. I can't add to it, except that I think one of the joys of this show is watching in the writing and in, of course, James Gandolfini's performance, how Tony, among other characters, deals with certain consequences of what he does and how he has to live with it and why, in some way, because he refuses to reconcile those things or really deal with them, he won't ever really be happy. Um, so I th- And that's one of the things, because about this question of human happiness coming up, in terms of the identity of the happy wanderer or the sad douchebags, that juxtaposition, what it brings up is continually fascinating to me. And I just think this episode is particularly effective in that realm. And Gandolfini, as always, top shelf. Couldn't have said it any better, guys. And with that, that's a wrap on another episode. Folks, don't unbuckle. This season is not going to fucking let up. 
Our next episode is D-Girl from Season 2. It's a personal favorite of mine. It furthers. It's a great episode for Christopher. I'm excited to cover it with you guys. And there's a very fun celebrity cameo or two in that episode that I'm very much looking forward to. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we'll see you next time for D-Girl. Oh, cheese fuck. Get me some food. Get myself a girl. Oh, 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 o